Well, let's go ahead and go to our message for the morning. And we're going to be talking about the spirit and the flesh. Spirit and the flesh. It's kind of a, kind of a big one this morning. So, you know, you might want to stretch, you know, slap your face a little bit, put some water, because there's no way, no way to talk about the spirit and the flesh uh, without, without really hammering it good. So, Jesus, I pray that you would help me to preach this, God, that you would give us open hearts to receive it. And uh, Lord, even if there's just one thing we got to walk away with this morning, I pray that you'd really put that on our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Our fall series has really been about our vision. And so as we go to the next slide here, you'll see we're in the grow part. We did the gather part uh, first couple weeks. Uh, we did some of the grow, I believe, last week, and we're continuing it this week. And a lot of you are hitting bullet point number one, grow by coming to church. There's no, no, nothing like coming to church to foster spiritual growth. Another thing is joining and serving a ministry team. We've never had more ministry team signups in the history of LifePoint Church than we did at the Heart to Heart. So that is awesome. We had uh, nearly, I think, 45 people sign up. Uh, for a ministry team. So that is awesome. Uh, grow by committing to an additional Bible study or prayer group this Wednesday. Come on out. I'm telling you right now, uh, if you do it enough, it's just going to get in you. It's going to change your life, and you're going to have a lot more power in the Spirit to face this world. And then finally, grow by serving at an outreach, which we have an opportunity tonight to do at Church Without Walls. Show up there any between anytime between 6 and 7, and we'll be serve, it's our turn to serve food. So it's going to be essentially serving food at the outreach tonight. All right, that's from our vision. Let's go to the next slide. If I were to ask you how to describe light, how would you describe it? Right? Bright? <laughs> yeah. How else? Come on, just shout it out. How would you describe light? Opposite of dark. You just like went there right away. Okay, you must know. Right? Uh, the best way to describe light is if we were to cut all the power, right, and it's dark, and all of a sudden the lights come on, you would get what light is and what it does right away. How about to describe silence, right? What would be the best way to describe silence? If you wanted the opposite of silence, what would you want to describe silence? You'd want me, right? <laughs> He's the antonym of silence, Tom. You know, better yet, how would you describe Tom Nackey? I think... I think this next slide kind of, kind of says it all. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, uh, but I. I <laughs> okay, maybe maybe he's no Billy Graham, but, but we'll keep him, right? Yeah. <laughs> Contrast really helps us understand a lot of things. In fact, if you look at Paul's letters in the New Testament, Paul was an expert at the comparison contrast essay. Remember when you were in like grade school or junior high or high school, you'd have to write an essay, a comparison and contrast essay. Well, Paul was a master of it at the Bible, and it's a good thing he was because he explained some very hard things by using these contrasts. We're able to understand them even better. And in the book of Romans, which is arguably one of the greatest books of the Bible, it's really all about growth as a Christian. And in the first nine verses of Romans chapter 8, Paul says that there are only two ways to live, living in the flesh or living in the spirit. So if you have a Bible or a tablet or a smartphone, go ahead and open it up and you can put your own notes in. Otherwise, it is going to be right up here on the screen. Romans chapter 8, the first nine verses. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I could preach a sermon on that verse alone, but we're not going to this morning. Uh, <laughs> because through Christ, Je- through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. For what the law was powerless to do, the, the rules, the do-goods and don't-do-bads, was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Man, tell me not to do something, and all of a sudden that's the thing I want to do more than anything, right? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. We talked about this morning. That was a real body on the cross to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Some of you may be going right now, all right, that's okay. It's getting good. Verse 5, this is where we really want to go. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have set their minds on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, sorry, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. That's a key part of that verse. Don't get so frustrated with people who don't have the Holy Spirit who can't control themselves. The Bible says they have no ability to. It says, it does not to submit to God's law, nor can it do so. For those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. But you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Very key thing. In order to live life by the Spirit, you must have the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's really trying to say. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then life in the flesh is the best it can get. And that is a life that is both hostile to God and, and death, ultimately, in our spiritual nature. All right, now, what is the flesh, right? We use these comparison and contrast. Well, first of all, I want to do is, is uh, the meaning here is really much deeper. When we talk about the flesh, we're not just talking about the sensual sins. We're not just talking about skin. We're not just talking about the addictions and angers and abuses and appetites that we all have, and and some of them are benign, and some of them are destructive, and we struggle with them. Okay, those are all there. I think it's a given. I don't need to do Sunday school with you. You understand sinful appetites. Can we agree on that? I think what Paul's getting at here is much deeper than that. Because our appetites are the effect of something deep down inside. And that's what he's really getting at. David Jeremiah, who's, who's one of my favorite podcasters, when I was lying in bed during COVID for that month, I, I listened to him a lot. And he has, uh, I think, a definition of the flesh that I think is really cool. But I want to give him the credit, uh, credit where credit's due. He came up with this, not me. But here's what he said to do. Take the flesh. All right, and then the next slide. Take off the H. And let the H stand for him. That's Jesus. Okay? So take off the H, and the H stands for him, Jesus. All right? Then in the next slide, reverse the letters that you have left, and you get the word self. If you spell the word flesh backwards after you take off the H, you get the word self. And essentially, 
when Paul is talking about the flesh, he's talking about the self without Jesus. The self without him. Do you see that? Do you get it? The flesh is simply the self without him. Now, Paul is not saying that it is sinful to attend to your needs, right? Uh, we, I mean, we have to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So he's not saying that every time you do something for yourself, you're in the flesh. What he's saying is when you do things from yourselves independent of God, hostile to God, out of God's will, out of God's leading, out of God's direction, then what you're inevitably being led by is the flesh, which is programmed on autopilot for self. Does that make sense? Let me use kind of another contrast. So one flesh and spirit is self and, 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 and Holy Spirit. Another one could be described as this. Imagine you're comparing a car and an elevated train. A car is a lot like living in the flesh, self without God. You put gas in the tank and you drive it, you burn the gas, but what happens? You run out of gas, right? So then you stop and you get more gas and you burn it again and you get more gas and eventually you run out and you hit empty. Now, all of you with electric cars, don't, uh, just let's not go there right now, okay? We're talking about gas cars, all right? They got charges, so we're talking about, yeah. <laughs> How many of you can kind of identify with a life like that? You get filled up, you expend, you get almost empty and depleted, and you got to figure out a way to fill yourself up again. You expend, and you get empty and depleted. And it's almost like a life that's like this. Get filled up, get depleted. Filled up, get depleted. Filled up, get depleted. You don't have to raise your hands. But my venture to guess is that that's a lot of us. Sometimes me included. That's the life of a car. But an elevated train is actually the life that God has for us and wants for us. It's one that's available for the asking and taking if you reach out and grab it. Because an elevated train is constantly connected to power. I don't know if you knew that. It's got the two side rails, but the one in the middle is constantly electrified. That little handle that they do, that's to slow down or stop the electricity from moving the train. That's not to harness it. The electricity on that track is constant. And as long as the train stays in contact with the track, it will have constant power, unlimited power. Too many people think that walking with the Holy Spirit is a lot like riding in that car. You get filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you get run down, and then you got to go find something to get filled with the Holy Spirit again, but then you get emptied. But the fact of the matter is what Paul is trying to say, and what you see throughout the New Testament is, the Holy Spirit desires constant contact, just like an elevated train. The power is always available. And if you begin to feel depleted, it's because we've switched into gas car mode. And we've got to switch back to elevated train mode to be in constant contact with the Holy Spirit. When we stay in constant contact with the Holy Spirit, He continuously provides the power to overcome the flesh. And that's what Paul is talking about. If you have your discussion sheet, go ahead and flip it. 
and we're going to hit point number one. Just three points this morning. So uh, sometimes there's four, sometimes there's three. This one just fleshed out three, no pun intended. Uh, <coughs> I know, I know, that was bad. All right, point number one. He changes the way you think. He changes the way you think. Changes the way you think about what? Changes the way you think about sin. Changes the way you think about morality. Changes the way you think about the issues of our day. I remember one of the first time I saw a demonstration of the power of Christianity was when I was in high school. And there was this girl in our high school who was pro-choice, pro-choice, pro-choice. I mean, she was just like an evangelist for it. She was, I, I don't know if she had maybe had an abortion or what had happened in her life, but this is even overseas. It's simply an American parochial school overseas, and she was zealous for it. I w- and I was nothing at the time. I wasn't, I wasn't really walking with God. I was just kind of doing my own thing. Then, all of a sudden, she's pro-life, pro-life. God made the babies in the womb. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, what in the world just happened to this chick? She got filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit changes the way you think. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their nine minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. What have you set your mind on? This question has been gnawed at me all week. What have you set your mind on? Is your mind set on you? And I know so many people say, no, no, I'm not like that. That's a pretty selfish, narcissistic person. No, really, really look at every motivation and decision you do and ask yourself if you are somewhere at the benefit of them all. Because our default is often to be thinking about ourselves. Our default is the flesh, self without him, right? Our default just look at anybody's phone do you know what the biggest category of photo in their phones are today it's this thing called a selfie right (laughs) whenever you go to facebook you see all these pictures and it says so and so is at a restaurant right where's but oh you know why do you put that on there you want the world to see that you are at that restaurant so and so is at a baseball game right they're all at, so-and-so attended this, or so-and-so did that, or, you know, it's, it's all essentially the whole Facebook world out there. Look at what I am doing. So-and-so is feeling sad. Why do we put that out there? Because we want people on Facebook to hopefully affirm us. Oh, don't be sad. You're so wonderful. You're so beautiful. You're the greatest person I ever met. You know, that's what we're looking for, right? <laughs> yes. This person is now in a relationship. (laughs) What are you supposed to say to that? Congratulations. (laughs) Or I love it when I say under relationship and it says it's complicated. (laughs) What does that mean? You know, (laughs) it's complicated. You know, Facebook doesn't advertise anymore. It doesn't need to. But do you know what its slogan was when it did advertise? Anybody remember 2004, I think it was? One of the very rare years they ever had to advertise because they were competing with my space, my spot. My space. Uh, Facebook's advertising slogan was, it's all about you. Isn't that wild? This, this past Wednesday, you know, I hang out with the youth every Wednesday. And 
just for fun, I wanted to see some photos on their phone. So I'd say, hey, could you show me some photos on your phone? I'm just interested in what kind of pictures you take. And, and youth are, oh, yeah, you know, they whip out their phone. But was I really looking for the photos on their phone? Nope. I wanted to look at the where their, um, where their default was for their camera. Some of the phones, you can see it. If it's, if it's bolded, it means that the camera is pointing towards you to take a selfie. And if it's not, then it's pointing away to take a picture. I just did a random sampling of a handful of the kids. Every single one of them was on selfie. That's the flesh. It's living life in selfie mode. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you know what God does? He pushes that little button. And all of a sudden, the picture isn't taking a picture of you. It's looking out toward others. But more importantly, it's looking out at God. Amen? Is that a comparison and contrast that you all get in the 21st century? You realize I could not have used that example 20 years ago. What a freaky thing. <laughs> you know, it's like someone, you know, you, you probably met people like this. They come to church, of course, nobody at this church, but they come to church and they say, I want to sit where I want to sit. And I only want to talk to the people that I like and want to talk to. They better play the songs I want to hear. And the pastor better say something really good that makes me feel good about myself. Life in the Spirit thinks differently. Life in the Spirit shows up at church and says, who can I encourage today? Who's looking down? Man, they sure need a hug. What songs will reach the lost? What scripture do I need to hear? even if it stings. I often tell God, and I told the worship team this morning, I often tell God in prayer, God, Tom Naki must die. Tom Naki needs to die. The more Tom Naki is dead, and the more Jesus Christ is living in me, the better my family is, the better my faith is, the better our church is, the better everything that I'm trying to do outside of my world gets. Tom Naki must die. Put your name to that. Because the more we crucify our thinking and our flesh, and the more spirit rises in us, we live the life we were meant to live. Second thing, number two, he changes the way you sin. You might think this is kind of funny. Doesn't God lead us out of sin? Yes, he does. And I wish I could tell you that the moment you become a follower of Jesus, you'll never sin again. But the fact of the matter is, even the Bible doesn't teach that. That there will be a struggle with sin to our dying breath. Why? It's not because we have anything wrong spiritually. It's because we still live in these bodies. And these bodies just pull us into sin. Paul kind of calls it a lifelong struggle. And he says, who will rescue us from this body of death? Jesus. That's actually the verse right before we're talking about. He says, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you. To be in the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit moves into your life and actually lives literally within you. I remember when someone, uh, when I led someone to the Lord, uh, and I asked him a, a few months later, hey, what's your life been like since that prayer? His exact response was this, I don't sin easy anymore. You all know what that means, don't you? 
Because if you don't know what that means, you need to see me after church. But for those of you who know what that means, I don't sin easy anymore. I don't sin like I used to, is what he meant. And it's because God has given you a new nature. And it's at war with the old nature, the flesh. It's the dying on the outside, new life on the inside principle of the Bible. We die, yet we live, wasting away and yet living forever. Can we still sin? Yep. But it won't be easy. God won't make it easy. (laughs) You'll have to destroy your conscience to keep being in control of your life as opposed to surrendering it to God. That's life in the Spirit. It's a life of surrender. God, my flesh wants me to do this, but I'm going to obey you and do this. It's not an easy life. It's not for the faint of heart. But it's the best life. It's the best you. It's the life you're meant to live. Number three. Number three. He changes the way you repent. That's a little bit different too. He changes the way you think. He changes the way you sin. And he changes the way you repent. There are people that don't follow God, that don't know God, and they repent, or at least try to. There are different types of repentance. There are repentance that is focused on self, and then there's repentance that's focused on God. The verse I want to quote here is from actually 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and has no regrets. But worldly sorrow, what is that? Worldly sorrow brings death. You see, the Holy Spirit causes you to own your own sin, to make no excuses, and to feel bad about hurting God or others. It ultimately leads us to cry out to God and ask his help that we don't do it anymore. But worldly sorrow is a little different. They admit they did something wrong, but they get very defensive about it. They start blaming others or blaming things. Well, I did this because of this. I did that because of that. There's a shifting of blame and a defensiveness as we attempt to justify what we're doing as to why we simply had to do it. I just had to do it because of this and this and this. And ultimately, the sorrow is more about their self-image, doing damage control. I love it when celebrities get caught doing something. They're not really sorry, but now they've got to do some damage control on their image because their whole career is based on their image. They've got to, how, how can we spin this where I can look good? It isn't sorrow for what they did bad. It's how can we spin this because now I look bad, but I need to get back to looking good. That's often what worldly sorrow does. Self without him. I have an example for you. It's called the parable of the man caught in adultery. We have the parable of the woman caught in adultery. This is the parable of the man caught in adultery. And no, it is not in the Bible. I just made this up. The first man, he cries out to God, begging for mercy, recognizing his adultery as a sin before God. He pleads not for himself, but for his wife and his children, the damage that he has caused them, the embarrassment that he has caused them and the hurt that he has brought into their lives. 
He knows he has hurt his family. And he begs God for forgiveness and grieves over the hurt fellowship that he has with God right now. He comes to understand that Jesus has paid for his sins with his blood. And he has a true change of heart. And divorce or no divorce, he accepts my wife may leave me, she may stay with me. If she leaves me, she is justified in leaving me because I have broken our marriage covenant. If she stays with me, praise God, because I would like to stick with God's best. So divorce or no divorce, he receives God's forgiveness, accepts the consequences, takes responsibility for his action, and moves forward a changed man. Even though he did a horrible thing, that's life. That's life. That's living. That's the Holy Spirit changing the way we repent. Now here's the second man. The second man cries out to God also. He also confesses his sin. He also admits to wrongdoing. But he remains completely self-focused. He blames his wife that drove him into an affair. He bemoans all the unfair treatment that he is receiving since the news got out. <clears throat> he demands justice from all these people who are butting into his business. His remorse and regret is more that he looks bad, not that he did bad. See the difference? His remorse and regret is more that he looks bad, not that he did bad. He focuses on his own pain, unaware of the pain he has caused others. He has no brokenness for God, and inevitably, he plunges into self-pity and despair. Two kinds of repentance. One in the spirit, one in the flesh. Two very different reactions. You see, the flesh and the spirit are at war within you. The flesh has desires for you. And the spirit has desires for you. And they are moving in opposite directions. Sometimes I can tell God's will because I know that my will in the flesh and I just think to myself, what is the exact opposite? And all of a sudden, God's will gets clearer to me. But here's the thing. The flesh and the spirit, as much as I've talked about the contrasts, they do have one thing in common. And you know what that is? They want control over your life. There's an old Native American proverb. I've been really getting into Native American Christianity. Native American communities are very communal. I come from a Western European background which is very individualistic. So seeing how societies that were set up in a more communal aspect, you get very neat parallels to Christianity. And in a, in a, in a parable, a, a proverb that's probably a thousand years old, most of you have heard it before, it's the tale of the, two, the dog and the wolf. There was a boy who was coming of age in a Native American tribe. And as he was coming of age, his parents sent him to the medicine man. And because he said, the medicine man has to tell you a story. It's the most important story you'll ever hear. The boy went. And as he was about to take his place among the adults of the tribe, the medicine man said this. Here is a dog. It's 
intelligent, loving, kind, and trustworthy. On the other side here is the wolf. It's malevolent, vicious, and ready to kill. He said, the dog and the wolf are inside of you, and they are fighting. The boy said worriedly, which one's going to win? And the medicine man simply said, whichever one you feed. Whichever one you feed, the flesh or the spirit, is going to be the one that wins. I realize that with a message like this, it's, it's a high opportunity to sim- simply poke the bear. <laughs> a lot of us, especially older ones of us, we can be so set in our ways that this battle has already been set to our dying breath as to what we're going to do and how we're going to act. And I get that. In fact, we can live all of our lives in the flesh. Even as followers of Jesus, God will still take us to heaven. We're saved by grace, not by what we do, don't do. We'll still avoid the judgment We'll still avoid all those bad things we don't want. In fact, I've had people tell me the best thing about Christianity is I get to live in the flesh, still be forgiven, and get heaven too. Now, you'll be at the bottom rung of heaven forever. That's where you want to (laughs) be. You'll be at the bottom rung. You'll get in. Paul says you'll get in as one escaping the flames. That's what he says about those kinds of people. But if you want to live, you're going to have to dare to be different. Crucify ourselves. Because Christ bids us to come and die and find that I may truly live. And so, that's why I often say in prayer, Lord Jesus, Tom Naki must die. Tom Naki must die so that you may truly live. If you feel comfortable, go ahead and say that right now. Say your name and say you must die. Tom Naki must die. Lord Jesus, Tom Naki must die. Now, I'm not obviously saying you commit suicide. Talking spiritually here. That the spiritual control of your life will no longer be the flesh but the Spirit. And now let's go ahead and pray this together. Say, Lord Jesus, help me to live in the Spirit. I crucify my flesh that Jesus may live within me. Lead me, guide me, and convict me. I give you permission. Do this work in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.